irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. The Normandy landings were the landing operations on June 6, 1944, known as D-Day, of the Allied invasion of Normandy in Operation Overlord during World War II. The largest seaborne invasion in history, the operation began the invasion of German-occupied Western Europe, led to the liberation of France from Nazi control, and contributed to the Allied victory. Planning for the operation began in 1943. In the months leading up to the invasion, the Allies conducted a substantial military deception, codenamed Operation Bodyguard, to mislead the Germans as to the date and location of the main Allied landings. The weather on D-Day was far from ideal, but postponing would have meant a delay of at least two weeks, as the invasion planners had requirements for the phase of the moon, the tides, and the time of day that meant only a few days in each month were deemed suitable. Hitler placed German Field Marshal Erwin Rommel in command of German forces and developing fortifications along the Atlantic Wall in anticipation of an Allied invasion. The amphibious landings were preceded by extensive aerial and naval bombardment and airborne assault. The landing of 24,000 British, U.S., and Canadian airborne troops shortly after midnight. Allied infantry and armored divisions began landing off the coast of France at 6.30 in the morning. A target 50-mile or 80-kilometer stretch of the Normandy coast was divided into five sectors, Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword Beach, 
strong winds blew the landing craft east of their intended positions, particularly at Utah and Omaha. The men landed under heavy fire from gun emplacements, overlooking the beaches, and the shore was mined and covered with obstacles, such as wooden stakes, metal tripods, and barbed wire, making the work of the beach-clearing teams difficult and dangerous. Casualties were the heaviest at Omaha, with its high cliffs. At Gold, Juno, and Sword, several fortified towns were cleared in house-to-house fighting, and two major gun emplacements at Gold were disabled using specialized tanks. The Allies failed to achieve all of their goals on the first day. Keratin, St. Lo, and Bayeux remained in German hands, and Ka, a major objective, was not captured until July 21st. Only two of the beaches, Juno and Gold, were linked on the first day, and all five bridgeheads were not connected until June 12th. However, the operation gained a foothold that Allies gradually expanded over the coming months. German casualties on D-Day were around 1,000 men. Allied casualties were at least 10,000, with 4,414 confirmed dead. Between May 27th and June 4th, 1940, over 338,000 troops of the British Expeditionary Force and the French Army trapped along the northern coast of France, were evacuated in the Dunkirk evacuation. After the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin began pressing for the creation of a second front in Western Europe. In late May 1942, the Soviet Union and the United States made a joint announcement that a full understanding was reached with regard to the urgent tasks of creating a second front in Europe in 1942. However, Churchill persuaded Roosevelt to postpone the promised invasion as, even with American help, the Allies did not have adequate forces for such a strike. Instead of an immediate return to France, the Western Allies staged offenses in the Mediterranean theater of operations, where British troops were already stationed. In mid-1943, the North African campaign had been won. The Allies then launched the invasion of Sicily in July 1943, and in Italy in September 1943. By then, Soviet forces were on the offensive, and had won a major victory at the Battle of Stalingrad. The decision to undertake a cross-channel invasion within the next year was taken at the Trident Conference in Washington in May of 1943. Initial planning was constrained by the numbers of available landing craft, most of which were already committed in the Mediterranean and the Pacific. At the Tehran Conference in November 1943, Roosevelt and Churchill promised Stalin that they would open the long-delayed Second Front in May 1944.
four sites were considered for the landing. Brittany, the Cotenin Peninsula, Normandy, and Pas de Calais. As Brittany and Cotenin are peninsulas, it would have been possible for the Germans to cut off the Allied advance at a relatively narrow isthmus. So these sites were rejected. As the Pas de Calais is the closest point in the continental Europe to Britain, the Germans considered it to be the most likely initial landing zone. So it was the most heavily fortified region. But it offered few opportunities for expansion, as the area is bounded by numerous rivers and canals. Whereas landing on a broad front in Normandy would permit simultaneous threats against the port of Cheeburg, coastal ports further west in Brittany, an overland attack towards Paris, and eventually into Germany. Normandy was hence chosen at the landing site. The most serious drawback of Normandy coast, the lack of port facilities, would be overcome through the development of artificial mulberry harbors, a series of specialized tanks nicknamed Hobart's Funnies were created to deal with conditions expected during the Normandy campaign, such as scaling seawalls and providing close support on the beach. The Allies planned to launch the invasion on May 1, 1944. The initial draft of the plan was accepted at the Quebec Conference in August of 1943. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was appointed commander of Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, or SHAIF. General Bernard Montgomery was named the commander of the 21st Army Group, which comprised all of the land forces involved in the invasion. On December 31, 1943, Eisenhower and Montgomery first saw the plan, which proposed amphibious landings by three divisions, with two more divisions in support. The two generals immediately insisted that the scale of the initial invasion be expanded to five divisions, with airborne descents by three additional divisions to allow operations on a wider front and speed up the capture of the port at Cherbourg. The need to acquire or produce extra landing craft for the expanded operation meant that the invasion had to be delayed till June. Eventually, 39 Allied divisions would be committed to the Battle of Normandy. 22 American, 12 British, 3 Canadian, 1 Polish, and 1 French, totaling over a million troops, all under British command. Operation Overlord was the name assigned to the establishment of a large-scale lodgment on the continent. The first phase, the amphibious invasion and establishment of a secure foothold, was codenamed Operation Neptune. To gain the air superiority needed to ensure a successful invasion, the Allies undertook a bombing campaign, codenamed Operation Point Blank, that targeted German aircraft production, fuel supplies, and airfields. Elaborate deceptions codenamed Operation Bodyguard were undertaken in the months leading up to the invasion 
to prevent the Germans from learning the timing and location of the invasion. The landings were to be preceded by an airborne landings near Ka in the eastern flank to secure the Orne River bridges and north of the Kateran on the western flank. The Americans assigned to land at Utah Beach and Omaha Beach were to attempt to capture Catan and St. Lowe on the first day, then cut off the Cotenin Peninsula and eventually capture the port facilities at Cherbourg. The British at Sword Beach and Gold Beach and Canadians at Juneau Beach would protect the American flank and attempt to establish airfields near Caen. A secure lodgment would be established and attempt made to hold all territory north of the Aranches Falas line within the first three weeks. Montgomery envisioned a 90-day battle, lasting until an Allied force reached the Seine. Under the overall umbrella of Operation Bodyguard, the Allies conducted several subsidiary operations designed to mislead the Germans as to the date and location of the Allied landings. Operation Fortitude included Fortitude North, a misinformation campaign using fake radio traffic to lead the Germans into expecting attack on Norway, and Fortitude South, a major deception involving the creation of a fictitious 1st United States Army Group under Lieutenant General George S. Patton, supposedly located in Kent and Sussex. Fortitude South was intended to deceive the Germans into believing that the main attack would take place at Calice. Genuine radio messages from the 21st Army Groups were first routed to Kent via landline, then broadcast to give Germans the impressions that most of the Allied troops were stationed there. Patton was stationed in England until July 6th, thus continuing to deceive the Germans into thinking a second attack would take place at Calais. Many of the German radar stations on the French coast were destroyed in preparation for the landing. In addition, on the night before the invasion, a small group of special air service or SAS operators, deployed dummy paratroopers over Le Havre and Insigny. These dummies led the Germans to believe that additional airborne landings had occurred. On that same night, in Operation Taxable, the 617th Squadron RAF dropped strips of window, which was metal foil that caused a radar return which was mistakenly interpreted by German radar operators as a naval convoy near Le Havre. The illusion was bolstered by a group of small craft towing barrage balloons. A similar deception was undertaken near Bourg Berlon-sur-Mer in the Pas de Calais area by the 218th Squadron RAF in Operation Glimmer. The invasion planners determined a set of conditions regarding the phase of the moon, the tides, 
and the time of the day that meant only a few days in each month were deemed suitable. A full moon was desirable as it would provide illumination for aircraft pilots and have the highest tides. The Allies wanted to schedule the landings for shortly before dawn, midway between low and high tide with the tide coming in. This would improve the visibility of obstacles on the beach while minimizing the amount of time the men had to spend exposed in the open. Eisenhower had tentatively selected June 5th for the date of the assault. However, on June 4th, conditions were clearly unsuitable for a landing. High winds and heavy seas made it impossible to launch landing craft, and low clouds would prevent aircraft from finding their targets. Group Captain James Stagg of the Royal Air Force, or the RAF, met with Eisenhower on the evening of June 4th. He and his meteorological team predicted that the weather would improve sufficiently so that the invasion could go ahead on June 6th. After much discussion with other senior commanders, Eisenhower decided that the invasion should go ahead on the 6th. Had Eisenhower postponed the invasion, the next available date with the correct combination of tides, but without the desirable full moon, was two weeks later, from June 18th to June 20th. But during this period, they would have encountered a major storm that lasted four days between June 19th and June 22nd, which would have made the initial landings impossible to undertake. Postponing the invasion would also mean recalling men and ships that were already in position across the channel and to increase the chances of the invasion being detected. Allied control of the Atlantic meant that German meteorologists did not have access to as much information as the Allies on the incoming weather patterns. As the Luftwaffe Meteorological Center in Paris was predicting two weeks of stormy weather, many workmock commanders left their posts to attend war games in Rennes, and men in many units were given leave. Field Marshal Erwin Rommel returned to Germany for his wife's birthday and to meet with Hitler to try to get more panzers. Nazi Germany had at its disposal 50 divisions in France and the Low Countries, with another 18 stationed in Denmark and Norway. 15 divisions were in the process of formation in Germany. Combat losses throughout the war, particularly on the Eastern Front, meant that the Germans no longer had a pool of able young men from which to draw. German soldiers were now on average six years older than their Allied counterparts. Many in the Normandy area were Osterlegionen, which were Eastern legions, conscripts and volunteers from Russia, Mongolia, and elsewhere. They were provided mainly with unreliable captured equipment and lacked motorized transports. Many German units were under strength.
Alarmed by the raids on the St. Nazir and the Dieppe in 1942, Hitler had ordered the construction of fortifications all along the Atlantic coast, from Spain to Norway, to protect against an expected Allied invasion. He envisioned 15,000 emplacements manned by 300,000 troops. But shortages, particularly of concrete and manpower, meant that most of the strong points were never built. As it was expected to be the site of the invasion, the Pas de Calais was heavily defended. In the Normandy area, the best fortifications were concentrated at the port facilities at Cherbourg and St. Malo. Rommel was assigned to oversee the construction of further fortifications along the expected invasion front, which stretched from the Netherlands to Cherbourg, and was given command of the newly reformed Army Group B, which included the 7th Army, the 15th Army, and the forces guarding the Netherlands. Reserves for this group included the 2nd, 21st, and 116th Panzer Divisions. Rommel believed that the Normandy coast would be an impossible landing site point for the invasion. So he ordered the construction of extensive defense works along that shore. In addition to concrete gun placements at strategic points along the coast, he ordered wooden stakes, metal tripods, mines, and large anti-tank obstacles to be placed on the beach to delay the approach of landing craft and impede the movements of tanks. Expecting the Allies to land at high tide so that the infantry would spend less time exposed on the beach, he ordered many of these obstacles to be placed at the high tide mark. Tangles of barbed wire, booby traps, and the removal of ground cover made the approach hazardous for the U.S. infantry. On Rommel's order, the number of mines along the coast was tripled. The Allied air offensive over Germany had crippled the Luftwaffe and established an air supremacy over Western Europe, so Rommel knew he could not expect effective air support. The Luftwaffe could muster only 815 aircraft over Normandy in comparison to the Allies' 9,543. Rommel arranged for booby trap stakes known as Rommelspargel, which is Rommel's asparagus in English, to be installed in meadows and fields to deter airborne landings. Ouch. Rommel believed that Germany's best chance was to stop the invasion at the shore and requested that the mobile reserves, especially tanks, be stationed as close to the coast as possible. Runstadt, Gear, and other senior commanders of Germany re- objected. They believed that the invasion could not be stopped on the beaches. Gear argued for a conventional doctrine, keeping the Panzer formation concentrated in a central position around Paris and Rhone, and deploying them only when the main Allied beachhead had been identified. He also noted that in the Italian campaign, 
the air-moored units stationed near the coast, had been damaged by naval bombardments. Rommel's opinion was that, because of Allied air supremacy, the large-scale movements of tanks would not be possible once the invasion was underway. Hitler made the final decision, which was to leave three panzer divisions under Gehr's command and give Rommel operational control of three more as reserves. Hitler himself took personal control of four divisions as strategic reserves not to be used without his direct orders. Through the London-based Etat Major de Forces Francis de Inernier, French Forces of the Interior in English, the British Special Operations Executive orchestrated a massive campaign of sabotage to be implemented by the French resistance. The Allies developed four plans for resistance to execute on D-Day and the following days. Plan Vert was a 15-day operation to sabotage the rail system. Plan Bleu dealt with destroying electrical facilities. Plan Tortue was a delaying operation aimed at the enemy forces that would potentially reinforce Axis forces at Normandy. Plan Violet dealt with cutting underground telephones and teleprinter cables. The resistance was alerted to carry out these tasks by messengers, personnels, transmitted by the BBC French service from London. Several hundred of these messages, which might be snatches of poetry, quotations from literature, or random sentences, were regularly transmitted, masking the few that were actually significant. In the few weeks preceding the landings, lists of messages and their meanings were distributed to resistance groups. An increase in radioactivity on June 5th was correctly interpreted by the German intelligence to mean that an invasion was imminent or underway. However, because of the barrage of previous false warnings and misinformation, most units ignored their warning. A 1965 report from the Counterinsurgency Information Analysis Center details the results of the French resistance sabotage efforts. In the southeast, 52 locomotives were destroyed on June 6th, and the railway lines cut in more than 500 places. Normandy, for all intensive purposes, was isolated thanks to the French resistance as of June 7th. Naval operations for the invasion were described by historians as never-surpassed masterpiece of planning. In overall command was the British Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsey, who had served as flag officer at Dover during Dunkirk evacuation four years earlier. He had also been responsible for the naval planning of the invasion of North Africa in 1942 and one of the two fleets carrying troops for the invasion of Sicily the following year. The invasion fleet was drawn from eight different navies, 
comprising 6,939 vessels, 1,213 warships, and 4,126 landing craft of various types, 736 ancillary craft, and 864 merchant vessels. The majority of the fleet was supplied by the United Kingdom and Canada, who provided 892 warships and 3,261 landing craft. There were 195,700 There were 195,700 naval personnel involved. The invasion fleet was split into the Western Naval Task Force under Admiral Alan G. Kirk, supporting the American sectors and the Eastern Naval Task Force under Admiral Sir Philip Vian in the British and Canadian sectors. Available to the fleet were five battleships, 20 cruisers, 65 destroyers, and two monitors. German ships in the area on D-Day included three torpedo boats, 29 fast-attack craft, 36 R-boats, and 36 minesweepers and patrol boats. The Germans also had several U-boats available, and all the approaches had been heavily mined. As of 5.10 in the morning on D-Day, four German torpedo boats reached the Eastern Task Force and launched 15 torpedoes, sinking the Norwegian destroyer HNOMS Sevner off Sword Beach, but missing the battleship HMS Warspite and Ramillies. After firing, the German vessels turned away and fled east into a smokescreen that had been laid by the RAF to shield the fleet from the long-range battery at Le Havre. Allied losses to mines included USS Corey off Utah and USS PC-1261, a 173-foot patrol craft. In addition, many landing craft were lost. Bombing of Normandy began around midnight, with over 2,200 British and American bombers attacking targets along the coast and further inland. The coastal bombing attack was largely ineffective at Omaha, because low cloud cover made the assigned targets difficult to see. Concerned about inflicting casualties on their own troops, many bombers delayed their attacks too long and failed to hit the hit the beach defenses. The Germans had 570 aircraft stationed in Normandy and the Low Countries on D-Day, and another 964 in Germany. Minesweepers began clearing channels for the invasion fleet shortly after midnight and finished just after dawn without encountering the enemy. The Western Task Force included the battleship Arkansas, Nevada, and Texas, plus eight cruisers, 21 destroyers, and one monitor. The Eastern Task Force included the battleship HMS Ramillies and Warspite, and the monitor HMS Roberts, 12 cruisers and 37 destroyers, 
Naval bombardment of the areas behind the beach commenced at 5.45 in the morning, while it was still dark, with the gunners switching to pre-assigned targets on the beach as soon as it was light enough to see, at 5.50. Since troops were scheduled to land at Utah and Omaha starting at 6.30, an hour earlier than the British beaches, these areas received only about 40 minutes of naval bombardment before the assault troops began to land on the shore. Some of the landing craft had been modified to provide close support fire and self-propelled amphibious duplex drive tanks, otherwise known as DD tanks, specially designed for the Normandy landings, were to land shortly before the infantry to provide covering fire. However, few arrived in advance of the infantry and many sank before reaching the shore especially at Omaha. The Airborne Operations The success of the amphibious landing depended on the establishment of a secure lodgment from which to expand the beachhead to allow the buildup of well-supplied forces capable of breaking out. The amphibious forces were especially vulnerable to strong enemy counterattacks before the buildup of significant forces in the beachhead could be accomplished. To slow or eliminate the enemy's ability to organize and launch counterattacks during this critical period, airborne operations were used to seize key objectives, such as bridges, road crossings, and terrain features, particularly on the eastern and western flanks of the landing areas. The airborne landings some distance behind the beaches were also intended to ease the egress of the amphibious forces off the beaches, and in some cases to neutralize German German coastal defense batteries and more quickly expand the area of the beachhead. The U.S. 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions were assigned to objectives west of Utah Beach, where they hoped to capture and control the few narrow causeways through terrain that had been intentionally flooded by the Germans. Reports from Allied intelligence in mid-May of the arrival of the German 91st Infantry Division meant that the intended drop zones had to be shifted eastward and to the south. The British 6th Airborne Division on the eastern flank was assigned to capture and tank the bridges over the Ka Canal and River Orne, destroy five bridges or the dives six miles or ten kilometers to the east, and destroy the Merville gun battery overlooking Sword Beach. Free French paratroopers from the British SAS Brigade were assigned to objectives in Brittany from June 5th through August in Operation Ningsun, Samwest, and Cooney. BBC war correspondent Robert Barr described the scene as paratroopers prepared to board their aircraft. Their faces were darkened with coca. Sheathed knives were strapped to their ankles. Tommy guns strapped to their waists. Bandolets and hand grenades. Coils of rope. Pick handles, spades, rubber dinghies hung around them. And a few personal oddments. Like the lad who was taking a newspaper to read on the plane. There was an easy familiar touch about the way they were getting ready. As though they'd done it often before. Well, yes, they had kitted up and climbed aboard often just like this, 
20, 30, 40 times, some of them. But it's never been quite like this before. This was the first combat jump for every one of them. The American airborne landings began with the arrival of Pathfinders at 12.15 midnight. Navigation was difficult of a bank of thick clouds and a result only one of the five paratroopers drop zones was accurately marked with radar signals and Aldis lamps. Paratroopers of the U.S. 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions numbering over 13,000 men were delivered by Douglas C-47 Skytrains of the 9th Troop Carrier Command. To avoid flying over the invasion fleet, the planes arrived from the west over the Coton Peninsula that exited over Utah Beach. Paratroopers from the 101st Airborne were dropped beginning around 1.30 in the morning, tasked with controlling the causeways behind Utah Beach and destroying roads and rail bridges over Dove River. The C-47s could not fly in a tight formation because of thick cloud cover, and many paratroopers were dropped far from their intended landing zones. Many planes came in so low that they were under fire from both flak and machine gun fire. Some paratroopers were killed on impact when their parachutes did not have time to open, and others drowned in the flooded field. Gathering together into fighting units was made difficult by a shortage of radios and by the Boge Cage terrain with its hedgerows, stone walls, and marshes. Some units did not arrive at their target until afternoon, by which time several of the causeways had already been cleared by members of the 4th Infantry Division moving up from the beach. Troops of the 82nd Airborne began arriving around 2.30 in the morning with the primary objective of capturing two bridges over the River Murdart and destroying two bridges over the Douve. On the east side of the river, 75% of the paratroopers landed in or near their drop zone, and within two hours they had captured the important crossroads at St. Marais de Lige, the first town liberated in the invasion, and began working to protect the western flank. Because of the failure of the pathfinders to accurately mark their drop zone, the two regiments dropped in on the west sides of the Murder were extremely scattered with only 4% landing in the target area. Many landed in nearby swamps with much loss of life. Paratroopers consolidated into small groups, usually a combination of men of various ranks from different units, and attempted to concentrate on nearby objectives. They captured but failed to hold Murder River Bridge at La Fierre, and fighting for the crossing continued for several days. Reinforcements arrived by glider around 4 a.m., which was known as Mission Chicago and Mission Detroit. And by 9 p.m. that night, Mission Keokuk and Mission Elmira, bringing additional troops and heavy equipment. Like the paratroopers, many landed far from their drop zones. Even those that landed on target experienced difficulty, with heavy cargo such as jeeps, shifting during landing, crashing through the wooden fulsage, and in some cases, crushing 
personnel on board. After 24 hours, only 2,500 men of the 101st and 2,000 of the 82nd Airborne were under the control of divisions. Approximately a third of the force dropped. This wide dispersal had the effect of confusing the Germans and fragmenting their response. The 7th Army received notification of the parachute drops at 1.20 in the morning but Runstent did not initially believe that a major invasion was underway. The destruction of raider stations along the Normandy coast in the week before the invasions meant that the Germans did not detect the approaching fleet until two in the morning. The first Allied action of D-Day was Operation Deadstick, a glider assault at 12.16 in the morning at Pegasus Bridge over the Ka Canal and the bridge over the Orne, a half mile or 800 meters to the east. Both bridges were quickly captured intact, with light casualties by members of the 5th Parachute Brigade and the 7th Light Infantry Parachute Battalion. The five bridges over the dives were destroyed with minimal difficulty by the 3rd Parachute Brigade. Meanwhile, the Pathfinder's task was setting up radar beacons and lights for further paratroopers, scheduled to begin at 12.50 a.m. to clear the landing zone north of Ranville, were blown off course and had to set up navigation aids too far east. Many paratroopers, also blown too far east, landed far from their intended drop zones. Some took hours or even days to be reunited with their units. Major General Richard Gale arrived in the third wave of gliders at 3.30 in the morning along with equipment such as anti-tank guns, jeeps, and more troops to help secure the area from counterattack, which were initially staged by only troops in the immediate vicinity of the landings. At 2 in the morning, the commander of the German 716th Infantry Division ordered Finchendinger to move his 21st Panzer Division into position to counterattack. However, as the division was part of the Armored Reserve, Finchendinger was obliged to seek clearance from OKW before he would commit his formation. He did not receive orders until nearly 9 in the morning, but in the meantime, on his own initiative, he put together a battle group, including tanks, to fight the British forces east of the Orne. Only 160 men out of the 600 members of the 9th Battalion tasked with eliminating the enemy battery at Merville arrived at the rendezvous point. Lieutenant Colonel Terence Ottaway, in charge of the operation, decided to proceed regardless as the emplacement had to be destroyed by 6 a.m. to prevent its firing on the invasion fleet and the troops arriving at Sword Beach. In the Battle of Merville Gun Battery, Allied forces established the guns at a cost of 75 casualties. The emplacement was found to contain 75mm guns rather than the expected 150mm heavy 
coastal artillery. With this action, the last of the D-Day goals of the British 6th Airborne Division was achieved. They were reinforced at 12 noon by commandos of the 1st Special Brigade, who landed at Sword Beach, and by the 6th Air Landing Brigade, who arrived in gliders at 9 o'clock in Operation Millard. Utah Beach was in the area defended by two battalions of the 919th Grenadier Regiment. Members of the 8th Infantry Regiment of the 4th Infantry Division were the first to land, arriving at 6.30 in the morning. Their landing craft, craft were pushed to the south by strong currents, and they found themselves about 2,000 yards, or 2 kilometers, from their intended landing zone. This site turned out to be better, as there was only one strong point nearby, rather than two, and bombers of the 9th Bomber Command had bombed the defenses from lower than their prescribed altitude, inflicting considerable damage. In addition, the strong currents had washed ashore many of the underwater obstacles. The assistant commander of the 4th Infantry Division, Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the first senior officer ashore, made the decision to start the war from right here and ordered further landings to be rerouted. The initial assault battalions were quickly followed by 28 DD tanks and several waves of engineers and demolition teams to remove beach obstacles and clear the area directly behind the beach of obstacles and mines. Gaps were blown in the sea wall to allow quicker access for the troops and tanks. Combat teams began to exit the beach at around 9 a.m., with some infantry wading through the flooded fields rather than traveling on the single road. They skirmished throughout the day with the elements of the 919th Grenadier Regiment who were armed with anti-tank guns and rifles. The main strong point in the area at another 1,300 yards or one kilometer to the south were disabled by noon. The 4th Infantry Division did not meet all their D-Day objectives at Utah Beach partly because they had arrived too far to the south, but they landed 21,000 troops at the cost of only 197 casualties. Little known is Point de Hoc, a prominent headland situated between Utah and Omaha was assigned to 200 men of the 2nd Ranger Battalion. Commanded by Lieutenant Colonel James Rudder, their task was to scale the 30-meter or 100-foot cliffs with grappling hooks, ropes, and ladders to destroy the coastal gun battery located at the top. While under fire from above, the men scaled the cliff only to discover that the guns had already been withdrawn. The rangers located the weapons unguarded but ready to use in an orchard some 500 meters or 600 yards south of the point and disabled them with explosives. Under attack, 
the men at the point became isolated and some were captured. By dawn on D plus one day, Reuter had only 90 men available to fight. Relief did not arrive until D plus two day when the members of the 743rd Tank Battalion and others arrived. Rudder's men had run out of ammunition and were using captured German weapons. Several men were killed as a result because German weapons made a distinctive noise and the men were mistaken for the enemy. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.